This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Welcome listeners to another Heartland Daily Podcast. The Heartland Institute covers a wide variety of issue areas, um, including criminal justice reform. One of the policies Heartland has been on the forefront is reforming states' asset forfeiture laws. Some may be surprised that law enforcement can actually seize the property and the cash, namely of persons that are assumed of a crime, and in some instances they don't even have to be convicted of said crime. And often these um, forfeited proceeds are dispersed to local uh, law enforcement agencies with little to no transparency and or accountability. Today, I have a New Hampshire state representative that's looking to reform some of that. Um, Representative James Spillane is here to discuss a bill that he's bringing forth that would bring transparency to civil asset for to criminal asset forfeiture and help it address the opioid epidemic in his community. And I'm really excited about this bill. Um, Representative Spillane, thanks for joining us today. How are you? I'm doing great, thank you, Lindsay. Okay, so can you? Um, I always have this every time I do a podcast. So can you just kind of introduce yourself to um, our listeners and um, how long you've been a lawmaker and um, what New Hampshire's like for people who may not have had a chance to go there? Sure. Well, New Hampshire has uh, the dis- distinction of uh, having the largest um, elected representative body in in the U.S. and it's the third largest in the world. We have four hundred state representatives for the population. It equals about one state representative for every 3,500 people or so in the state. And um, so we have some very close to the population activities that go on in the state house. Uh, it's not uncommon for people to run into their state rep in the grocery store. So it's, it's very much a grassroots type of volunteer legislature. We get paid $100 a year for our efforts. It's in the Constitution. There's nothing that can be changed about that. And I'm on my third term now, um, halfway through it, so five years in, as a state representative here in New Hampshire. I'm also the uh, one of the tri-chairs for the House Republican Alliance, the oldest and most influential caucus uh, in the state house. And um, we rate bills as they come into the House based on their adherence to the Constitution, both state and federal Constitution, and their adherence to the Republican Party platform. We then take those ratings and we say whether representatives should vote for or against a particular bill, uh, or if there's no implication at all, we say they can vote their conscience or however they will. But uh, it it allows us to provide guidance that um, presents arguments as to why something might be constitutional or follow the party platform versus being unconstitutional, in our opinion, or going against the party platform. And uh, so in this whole vein of the way that I've worked through my five years, I have been uh, very much a constitutional conservative here in New Hampshire, trying to ensure that things that get put forward are not trampling on people's innate rights and uh, open those rights up more whenever possible. So in that vein, that's why I've put forward this bill. Okay, awesome. No, I didn't know about the um, Republican Alliance. It's really interesting. It's good to see that you guys have a kind of a watchdog organization out there. 
Um, yeah, so let's just get to it. Let's talk about uh, House Bill 1563. Um, this is a pretty cool bill, and I don't think it's ever really been done before. Um, can you just kind of, let's work through this. Um, why did you introduce this bill? Uh, well, first of all, wh- explain what this bill does, and then what your reasoning for introducing it. Well, the idea for this bill came about when I was addressing a uh, crowd in New Hampshire, uh, in Manchester, and I was asked to speak at the um, Day of Empathy in Manchester um, two years ago, and I had vowed that if I got elected, I would put forward this bill. Uh, I spent a lot of time struggling over what I was going to say at that uh, Day of Empathy, and um, we were essentially struggling and still are struggling with a a huge opioid crisis in the state, and the whole purpose of um, the speaking at that day was to try to find ways to address not only the opioid problem in the state, but uh, problems with incarceration and uh, allowing people to have a second chance after they've been through these things, and essentially get the state to show more empathy towards the victims. And as I thought about it, one of the things that struck me was that we we keep trying to address the problem in the same old way all the time, and there might be something relatively easy we could do that would allow us to address things better. And it's pretty clear that we cannot arrest our way out of an opioid addiction problem. No. Arresting people isn't going to fix them. However, we can um, lift them up and support them and help get them the help that they need. And to that end, uh, we also on a constitutional basis, want to avoid any um, appearance that police may be arresting for profit in the state. And it's been a problem with our criminal asset forfeiture for a long time that there's this doubt in the back of people's mind as to whether certain people or certain groups are targeted because of the assets they have that the police then get to confiscate and they go to the state. Yep. So this bill was born out of the idea that if we modify our criminal asset laws, uh, criminal asset forfeiture laws, and I want to make a clear distinction, criminal asset forfeiture is a little different than just civil asset forfeiture. Criminal asset forfeiture is only confiscating the assets after the conviction has been found to be true. Once there is a conviction and the person is found guilty of the crime, then the assets may be forfeited. This is not um, addressing the situation where assets may be forfeited prior to conviction. We don't have that in New Hampshire uh, at this time. There's there's no um, broad swath of civil asset forfeiture going on. Uh, But criminal asset forfeiture does happen, and I've actually got some uh, fiscal year 2019 figures on what happened with our criminal asset forfeiture that I can put forward. Uh, They came about as part of the fiscal analysis for this bill. Okay. And so essentially, my bill, uh, HB 1563, will change the law so that instead of criminal assets uh, after a conviction being forfeited and then given to the Attorney General's office to be spent on further creating drug stings and arrests and giving them to the police departments um, and split among the, the local police departments wherever the drug bust was made, etc., it takes that money and it says you may use it at the Attorney General's uh, office to reimburse for the costs incurred by the arrest and conviction. And then after that happens, the remaining assets go to the Governor's Council for Addiction and Recovery, where the Governor and Executive Council will determine 
how to best use the funds by distributing it to the recovery centers and programs. And this does two things. It takes away any uh, appearance of arresting for profit because the police don't profit from the arrest at this point directly. And it also makes the criminal who's now been convicted of selling the drugs reimburse the people who were the victims of his criminal enterprise by those monies going directly into recovery, healing, and prevention of uh, the victims that, that he created, he or she created through their criminal enterprise. It's fantastic. Is the funds of the, um, at the governor's council, um, are they going to, would they be dispersed um, based off of the location where, I guess, the, where the crime was taking place at, or would it be just automatically dispersed throughout the state? Um, that's actually something that the governor's council and executive council will be able to determine on their own. Um, we did not specify in the bill that they had to go back to uh, recovery centers that were generally geographically in the same area as yeah. the crime took place. And uh, part of the reason is because sometimes that's hard to determine. If you're arresting somebody on a pipeline in 93, just because they were arrested in Londonderry, does it really mean that that was where they were intending to go? Or were they just close to the border on one of the avenues going through the state? So um, there's no direct correlation between where the arrest was made, where the what court the conviction was made in, and where the actual damage was being done by the drugs that were brought in. So the governor's council... Um, the governor and his executive council will be able to look at the different recovery centers and programs in the state, determine which have a need, and distribute those funds. Um, specifically, what's uh, the, the language of the bill uh, says that um, we are establishing within the state treasury a special revolving fund to be designated as the drug forfeiture fund. That hasn't changed. That's still mm-hmm. there as prior. Yeah. But it says that this fund shall be administered by the governor and council instead of the attorney general and may be used to reimburse, not to pay, but just to reimburse the costs to local, county, or state officials incurred by an offender resulting from an arrest and prosecution in the local, county, and state drug-related investigations. So that portion of the money will go uh, through the AG's office to the specific location where the arrest was made and or where the conviction had to be done to reimburse the actual expenses incurred. From that point then, we've added language that says the fund may also be used for drug treatment, mental health treatment, rehabilitation, prevention, or education, or any other program which deters drug or substance misuse or responds to problems created by drugs or substance misuse, and for matching funds for grant programs related to drug treatment or prevention and any combination of those purposes. So it's pretty clear that this is majority of this money is going to be used for uh, making people who were victims of these crimes whole again to the best that we can. Yeah, and it, it also it, it addresses. I mean, I a lot of people don't understand that you know the the opioid epidemic. You know, it's so encompassing of so many state funding. Um, whether it's you know the crime part of it, but then the rehabilitation, the you know um, reversal drugs, the drug courts. You know, I mean, it's, there's a lot of cost to it. Um, and so this is going to kind of help provide some funding for it that's not relying on the federal government right now. Um, are there other programs not that? Yeah, it's not relying on the federal government, nor is it using taxpayer money yep. to pay for these, uh, 
programs for the victims of these criminals. It is actually making the criminals pay for it themselves, yes. which uh, is, is where how it should be done. You know, they created these victims, let them pay for them. And of course, the state will never be able to fund everything fully um, with just this money, but it's a hell of a lot better than what we've been doing now, which is all of the taxpayers' money having to get budgeted to be able to sustain some of these centers or having those centers go begging for private donations. So yeah. uh, we should be able to, to put a lot more resources to bear. And that's actually been borne out by the fiscal note um, and the analysis that was done by the Department of Health and Human Services as well as part of the fiscal note. Okay. Um, this bill is set to become active 60 days after passage. Okay, awesome. And... Yeah, so it could hit as early as this year, 2020, yeah. um, although their fiscal note says they don't expect it to, to become effective until 2021. And I don't understand their discrepancy in there, but I have never put a lot of stock in their fiscal notes because they <laughs> tend to be a lot of guesswork. Yeah, <laughs> well, and you've been there long enough to know how it goes. Um, okay, so uh, okay, so do you where, where do you see the bill going? Do you see it making it out of committee, making it out of the chambers? It's going to be difficult. We've... Uh, We've actually already started to mobilize the recovery centers to make sure that they can show up and testify. Uh -huh. This is going to be heard in front of the Judiciary Committee, and it's going to be heard um, on... At 22nd, what, right? The 22nd at yeah. 10 a.m., yeah, in, the, in front of the Judiciary Committee. And uh, I think the biggest opposition to this bill is going to come from the law enforcement um, entities. The... Attorney General himself, probably not so much, because he's still getting to spend for recouping his expenses. But the law enforcement agencies that will no longer be using this money for more surveillance and um, arresting and, you know, rolling that snowball bigger and bigger, they will probably be less inclined to support this and may be the strongest opposition to it. However, I feel that the Department of Health and Human Services, as well as the recovery centers throughout the state and the average people of the state, will be highly supportive of this bill. And I certainly can't see how with our opioid epidemic at the level that it is and the, the constant attempts that we're making to try to find new ways to fight this and bring it under control and stop the deaths, how um, other legislators would be able to, in good conscience, um, oppose it. Um, yeah. I wanted to give you those numbers from fiscal year uh, 2019, just so that you could get an idea of how much money we're talking about. In fiscal year 2019, drug forfeitures totaled $469,043. Uh, no, $469, oh, wow. Um, yeah, the Department of Health and Human Services got $36,453 out of that. Municipalities received 160220 and then the drug task force teams received $272,370. Oh, and those wow. drug task force teams used that money as police activities, yes. not recovery. Well, yeah, and it's not... <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. It's yeah, the, the, I mean, there is something to be said about getting the policing. I mean, and there, you know, but I think your bill does address the the, the costs that are going to go into policing these and getting these arrests. But um, it, you know, it, it, I don't see how they can be so much against it because if you do get these people the recovery, then you're not going to have these future criminals. Correct, correct, and um, I 
think that more and more our law enforcement in the state is seeing that some of these people that are getting hit by the arrests are not really criminals. They're not the ones causing the problems. They're victims. They're addicted. And they're causing crimes because of their addiction. And I think when you treat the addiction, the overall crime rate is going to drop. And the need for uh, monies for the crime prevention is going to drop. So hopefully we can get everybody on board to treat the problem rather than treat the symptom and to actually start putting a cure forward where we can uh, provide more help for those who are uh, struggling so hard. So, and you to go back to the fiscal note, um, data that you brought up, um, so the task force, you said that they got $273,000 um, into fiscal year 2019. Are they required? Um, I know I saw the Institute for Justice kind of gives uh, the New Hampshire a D ranking. Um, there's only like 40 um, of the of the tracks, you know, for transparency and, uh, transparency and accountability. Um, are they required to like disclose where they spent this money on? Is there any way to find that out, like short of a freedom of information request? No, to the best of my knowledge, there's not. And even a freedom of information request would very likely uh, be difficult to untangle what funds were budgeted funds and what funds came from this uh, and where those funds were spent. Okay. And so, and your bill would help address that. Would the governor's governor's council have to provide detailed reports on where their money is going? The governor's council would be making decisions, yes, on Mm -hmm. on where they spent the money and which... um, particular agencies benefited from it. Now, as part of this fiscal note, uh, they they do indicate here that the Department of Health and Human Services analyzed it, and they currently um, have used their funding for surveillance of the sale of tobacco and uh, alcohol to minors across the state. So the money that they got, if you remember the 2019 numbers, they got $36,453. That was used entirely on surveillance of sale of tobacco and alcohol to minors. Yeah, the the so compliance the checks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. know those. <laughs> so, um, they have decided with this analysis. Uh, it says the department assumes if the proposed changes result in an increased revenue to the account. In other words, if the governor's council gave more money to DHHS as part of the distribution to prevent that the Bureau would be expanding that programming around substance misuse and addiction prevention, intervention, and treatment. Okay. So in, in addition to the private recovery centers in the state that could benefit from this, there will be funding going to the state's own efforts. Um, and the Department. Of, that's why I think the Department of Health and Human Services will probably be in favor of this um, change. Oh, fantastic. Um, and then, so, okay, so the, the opposition, that was my um, second question. Now, um, do you have anything else you want to sit here and say about this before I get into um, what else we can expect out of New Hampshire? Um, I would, if anybody is interested in coming and testifying at uh, how much this would help to benefit and fight the opioid epidemic and they want to come and support this bill, I would welcome them to come on the 22nd and uh, show up at the uh, legislative uh, building and go ahead and... Uh, sign in in support of the bill and, and be there, and they can either just sign in or testify, but it always helps to have a lot of people support. And if they don't want to show up, they can always write their state representatives and let them know how important this type of change would be to them. Yeah, i got to share it on a, a Facebook group that I'm in, actually. I think it's a fantastic bill. I think that it's really coming um, 
and in these instances, and there's, I think it's one of these reforms that's really coming from the state and addressing it instead of just relying on additional funding um, and, and really, you know, putting into the, the hard, the, the, the programs that can actually try to actually help the opioid epidemic instead of just keep throwing money at them. Um, and, and getting yeah. some of that money that is being used, you know, that's prof- the people who are profiting off of the opioid epidemic. One last question on it. Would there be, <clears throat> excuse me. Would there be any implications on this with this bill in terms of like prescription pill companies um, that are being sued right now by the states? I don't believe it will touch them at all okay. um, because it, they would not be subject to the criminal asset forfeiture unless somehow uh, they were found guilty of actually trafficking in their drugs here in the state and then had some assets from the company forfeited. That's the only way the funds would find their way into the uh whole situation that they'd be governed by this law. But Lindsay, I'm really hoping that, you know, this goes through and it can be used as model legislation in other states, because I know that we're not the only state fighting this problem. And we're not the only state that has uh, civil asset forfeiture or criminal asset forfeiture issues that we're trying to iron out and fix. I've been sharing it, and actually, um, uh, the, uh, I've already sent your bill to a few uh, lawmakers in several states, um, including West Virginia and South Dakota. Um, I think it's a fantastic bill. I think it's a really smart reform, um, and, and it's really, and what I really do like about it, too, is it brings a lot of transparency into, you know, th- these these practices and this um, the way that, that you know, what, the criminal justice side of things Um I, you know, I mean, people should be punished, um, you know, based off of their crime. And I think that, you know, the state is should be required to be as transparent about that process as possible. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, no decisions are made in the executive council or the governor's uh, office that are not public um, decisions. So all of this is being done now in, in the light of day. If there's money and it's being sent to different groups and it's being used from this fund, there's going to be a trail that shows when was this discussed? When was it the decision made? Who were the people who made the decision? You'll see all of that as a permanent record. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so what else? Okay, so we have your bill. What else can we expect out of New Hampshire in 2020? Well, we're just really at the moment trying to um, hold back the water of bad bills that have been coming in. Um, We've seen all kinds of um, terrible legislation. We just tried to fight the red flag law uh, this week, and in fact, uh, it managed to pass the House because we're unfortunately um, finding that good conservatives, uh, Republicans, are outnumbered to the point where we can't stop bad bills from going forward in the House. We can't put good bills forward. We can only sustain the vetoes that our good Republican Governor Chris Sununu was throwing out left and right. Uh, He's got a record right now of having had the most vetoes ever by a governor in last year because of all of the bad bills that he's had to veto. I mean, we're fighting tax increases. We're fighting uh, gun-grabbing bills and um, everything under the sun. You guys aren't doing the regional or uh, the tr- uh, transportation and climate initiative, though, right? I think I was reading something that New Hampshire is like, we're not doing this. We are not doing that, absolutely. We are going to be fighting that, and um, we are not doing it at all. Uh, we also just managed to um, got, get tabled the carbon tax that they were trying to put forward. That happened this week as well. Oh. That would have been an $800 million boondoggle, and the Democrats were really pushing it hard, but they realized at the last moment that they really didn't want to go into their election year 
having put forward an $800 million tax on the people in New Hampshire. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, you're going to get. Although you... they had the numbers to pass it, they, they managed to table it instead. We convinced them that a table would be better for them. Yeah. Well, I know you guys have the flavor ban. I'm, my issue area is, you know, obviously vaping and stuff. So I know that the flavor ban has a hearing next week for uh, for e-cigarettes, which I don't get it because it's like you guys are right there with a bunch of, um, you know, all these states. I mean, Massachusetts banned it and Rhode Island still under a flavor ban. It's like you're getting all these other, you know, these people from Absolutely. these other states coming in. From, from their bans because people are coming to New Hampshire and we've already got the New Hampshire advantage with no sales tax, no income tax. People come up to New Hampshire already to, to visit our liquor stores because our state-run liquor stores have the cheapest prices. You can't beat them. Oh. Um, and, and so cigarettes are cheaper. Gas is, gasoline is cheaper. Alcohol is cheaper. Anything you buy that would be subject to a sales tax has no yep. sales tax in New Hampshire. People come here as a destination place for shopping, and <laughs> vaping is just another thing where they're coming across the line because of those bans that were put in place in the neighboring states. And I don't think it's going to go anywhere in New Hampshire. I'm Good. hoping that, um, like, well, like I said, we don't have the votes to actually stop it unless we get some of the Democrats to split off as well. Um, vaping is something that's not partisan. Uh, so I, I hope that we can get the numbers to kill this, just as we've done before with cigar taxes. Uh, yeah. It's another one that we don't have in New Hampshire, and it's made for uh, a great boon for the industry here in New Hampshire for those people who have cigar shops and cigar bars. We do not have a premium cigar tax. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, there's no tax at all on our cigars. So um, every year, pretty much every year, we can depend on a Democrat putting a bill forward to try to implement a cigar tax. And we've seen taxes anywhere from 10% sales tax all the way up to, believe it or not, a 65% tax on premium cigars oh, Jesus. that they've tried to put forward. And every single time they put one forward, we managed to kill it because there are enough people that smoke cigars on both sides of the aisle and, and, and or have constituents who run these shops that realize it would put the shops out of business if there was a 65% tax on cigars in New Hampshire. People are going to go online and buy them. Yes. And it's just going to happen the same way with the vapes, you know. Yeah. Uh, you can go ahead and ban the sale of the vapes here in New Hampshire, but people are going to get it, and it's not going to stop the kids. So banning those flavors is not something that the, the state or the federal government should be getting involved in. Uh, the marketing aspect should be done as a voluntary thing from the manufacturers. I think that we can easily get them to enter into agreements on how to market and how not to market. Yep. We saw the same situation many years ago with alcohol and the way it was marketed and cigarettes and the way they were marketed. We knew that vape would at some point need to be following the same route because it's something that we don't want our young people exposed to until they've got the ability to uh, actually make an informed decision of their own and um, at whatever age we've decided, whether it be 18 or whether it goes up to 21. <laughs> well, it is 21 age. now, <laughs> federally. <laughs> but you also have Vermont just introduced a bill that um, when you have to be 21, own, be in possession of a cell phone. Yes, I, uh, I tweeted about that this morning, actually. I thought it was absolutely ludicrous. Um, it's it's absolutely amazing, and I think that would definitely have to go as one of my top 10 
most stupid bills of 2020, and uh, here we are just at the beginning of the year. Well, I, honestly, so. if I was a lawmaker, I mean, I would be trolling people right now, especially after T21, um, and just putting ridiculous ones up just kind of as a joke. But I don't think this person did it as a joke. I mean, I think they put it up, like, legitimately. Um, but I also know Hawaii, um, they... Had t- they had like pushed it off the table last year, but it got reintroduced this year. or got moved or carried over on um, their bill that like by in like six years you'd have to be a hundred years old to purchase a tobacco product. <laughs> I hadn't heard about that one. Yeah, I can tell you. Um, I I have heard some people saying that they thought it was a sarcastic bill that was put in in Vermont and that it was done to make a point, but there was no real expectation yeah. of the bill passing. And I can tell you that um, my response to people has been that we are reminded time and again in the New Hampshire legislature that putting forward a bill should never be a joke. Yes. It costs money. Exactly. It's, and, and it costs lots of money. We're talking about the cost not only to research and draft the bill, but the cost incurred by holding the sessions for the public hearings in the House, by then introducing and doing the hearings on the House floor, uh, then moving over to the Senate, having that bill go through Senate hearings and Senate uh, floor action. All of these accumulated man hours cost a lot of labor. And yes. so you're talking about thousands of dollars of, of taxpayer money that could be wasted because somebody wants to put forward what they consider to be a joke bill yeah. just mm-hmm. to drive home a point. That's a good point. And so you don't see that happen in New Hampshire. People don't put forward a joke bill because we are reminded constantly that um, – those types of things are damaging to the economy. Yep. Well, yeah, and you guys have really have no staff either um, compared to a lot of other states. Um, moving into my last question, too. Um, I know it's an election year. Is that going to be a big thing? Do you think Republicans can take over um, New Hampshire? Oh, I'm I'm pretty damn positive we're going to be taking the state house back. Um, I, I think that um, it's going to be an uphill battle. It's not by no means going to be something that we can just walk in and, and take it, but people have seen the sheer number of bad bills that have been tried to put forward. And to be honest, that whole uh, analogy of throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what will stick is pretty much what they've been trying to do from the moment that uh, the House was lost to the control of the Democrats in the 2018 election. Uh, last year saw us hit a record number of of bills that needed vetoes. We spent the entire year doing roll calls on those bad bills so that we could prove to the governor that he wasn't going to waste any political capital by vetoing something that could be overturned. Um, He only had one bill that he vetoed that was overturned, and that was the death penalty bill. Um, and, And it repealed the death penalty. All of the other vetoes he placed, uh, to my knowledge, we were able to sustain every single one of his vetoes and show him that we had his back. Awesome. And the uh, sheer number of emails that I've gotten from people about these bad bills and the amount of popularity that Sununu has after those vetoes shows that the people realize that those were stupid bills and those were harmful bills. Um, They were going to be undoing the any advantage that we had in New Hampshire as far as uh, lower taxes or lack of taxes. Uh, And, and, you know, we're still fighting silly bills where they're trying to ban plastic bags. Um, To to ban single-use plastic bags and and even paper bags is absolutely a ridiculous 
uh, thing. It's you end up with situations like, well, geez, what's going to happen with your dry cleaning now? Yeah, was an example I brought up just yesterday. Um, I don't necessarily want to grab my dry cleaning and have no bag to protect it while I take it, put it in my car, and bring it home. Yep. But what am I going to use? I yep. can't use a plastic bag. I can't use a paper bag. What are we going to do? Do I have to bring a suitcase with me and fold up my dry cleaning and put it in a suitcase <laughs> to put in my car? It's it's far-reaching, and it's never been thought out well. Just like the plastic straw ban that we had to fight as well, um, straws aren't making up the majority of plastic pollutions. And anybody who knows anything um, can look at the data and see that it's, it's several large rivers that are coming out of China, coming out of Africa. These are the people that are dumping plastic into the oceans. And what we do here in America by banning a plastic bag or a straw is having no impact whatsoever in that amount of plastic that's entering yeah. the oceans. So. Yep, no, that's a very good, that's a very good point. <clears throat> okay, so um, any final words, last thoughts, um, you know, uh, about the bill, anything in general? Well, I would uh, invite anybody to uh, go ahead out to my own webpage and take a look at uh, what I've got out there. It's uh, jamesspillane.org is my website, uh, www.jamesspillane.org. And uh, I can always be reached by email at james at jamesspillane.org if anybody's got questions on the bill or if other legislators want to have the model legislation. I know that both uh, Heartland Institute and myself can get them a copy if they like it. But um, I hope that we can garner some support, uh, grassroots, and actually bring this further than just New Hampshire so that maybe we can get a handle on getting these recoveries to start happening. Yep, I think it's fantastic legislation. I'm excited to be working with you on it and hopefully other lawmakers. Um, well, uh, thank you for joining us today, Representative. Um, listeners, thank you for joining us on another Heartland Daily Podcast. For more information about this policy and civil asset forfeiture, please see our criminal justice page at heartland.org. Are you interested in helping the freedom movement? Are you interested in helping the Heartland Institute? Then consider selecting the Heartland Institute as your Amazon Smile charity of choice. Amazon's charity will donate one half of 1% of your purchases to the Heartland Institute without any additional cost to you. And believe us, every little bit counts. Visit smile.amazon.com and type in the Heartland Institute to get started today.